I wasn't I wasn't looking for applause, but I received that as as a sign of thankfulness. I appreciate that, and I want I want you to know it has been one of the uh, highlights of my entire life. That's not an overstatement. One of the highlights of my entire life to preach God's word to you. So uh, the next five Sundays I'll be on sabbatical. Sorry, getting choked up here. Goodness. Uh, the next five Sundays I'll be on sabbatical. One of our members over here, longtime members, Joan Baker, said you're coming back now, aren't you? I said that is the plan. The plan is to get recharged, refreshed, and to come back ready to serve. So for the next uh, five Sundays, uh, I will not be here. I'll be here on uh, Sunday number six, but I won't be preaching that Sunday. I'll be here in the service and be back on as a pastor. Uh, So in that time, we're not going into isolation, but we are taking some time away from the regular responsibilities of ministry in order to rest, recharge, and come back, Lord willing, to serve the Lord. There's a lot of work to be done here. Good work, exciting work. I think we're in one of these places where there's lots of exciting things on the verge of happening. God has been so gracious to sustain us through a season that was unlike any other ministry season. And, uh, and I think we're coming out of this in a good place and the need to move forward, which is even what I plan to address this morning in our sermon. So for the next six weeks, our assistant pastors will rotate uh, teaching through the uh, two different minor prophets, Nahum and Habakkuk. That'll be six Sundays, and uh, so I'm excited to see what the Lord does in the life of our church as they bring God's word in that time. Then the seventh week after that, we'll have a guest preacher, uh, Nate Aiken from Open Door Church in Raleigh, who's also with the Pillar Network, will be here for that seventh Sunday as well. And the plan is, after that, uh, to return and go back to our book of Genesis study. So I'll be back for that. Well, as we begin our time here together this morning in 2 Timothy, uh, let's bow and pray. Father, we come to you this morning, we're in need of your help, and so where else can we go besides your word, and asking you through your presence to guide us, to build us up, to look more like your son Jesus. We ask you to come and work this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, is the blessed life a hard life? Is a blessed life, a life of blessing from God, does it involve difficulties and hardships? I wonder how much we, we think of life in terms of this hashtag on Instagram, hashtag blessed, uh, sitting on a beach and uh, a beautiful view on, on vacation, toes in the sand, soaking in the sun, drinking a LaCroix. Okay, that's what I do. I drink LaCroix. A lot of you like to think it's nasty. But that's what I do. Uh, is, is, is that the blessed life? Now, hear me correctly. That's a blessing. Vacations are a blessing. I hope you get one this summer. I plan to be at the beach this week for a few days. Those are a blessing. They're a gift from the Lord, something that he gives to us. That's a blessing. But are those moments of serenity and vacation and a rest from work, is that the sum total of the blessed life? Does this hashtag blessed just mean sunny skies, things going well? Well, what about being persecuted for your faith? What about suffering hardships? Enduring trials. What, what about hard work and the exhausting labor involved with ministry for the gospel? Does God's blessing cease in those moments? Do we just hope that those things, they pass, so we can get back to the hashtag blessed life? Or might it be in those moments that we know the blessing of the Lord in a deeper way than we experience, even when things are going well and the sky is sunny? Did those moments of hardship and trial, did those, do those count as the blessed life? Well, today in 2 Timothy, we see Paul preparing Timothy for ongoing service 
to Christ. It's a blessing to serve Christ. That's the blessed life, to know Jesus and to obey him, to follow him, to serve him. And we see the Apostle Paul wants Timothy to be so clear that part of this blessed life of serving Jesus involves perseverance in hard work and perseverance through hardship and suffering as we serve Christ. Well, let me provide a little bit of a context as we jump into this letter. Some of you may have saw this this morning, wondering, where is this in a Father's Day sermon? Well, it's not a Father's Day sermon. Uh, it's just really a one-off in, in a pastoral epistle, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, I think there's some, some timely uh, exhortations for us here as a church as we've come out of a, a, a unique and unusual season and we're back together at one service and, and looking forward to what it looks like to rebuild this ministry of this local church together. I, I think it's going to be profitable for us to jump in just for one sermon in between Genesis and Lord willing the Minor Prophets next week. Now, 2 Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul while he was imprisoned in Rome. He wasn't imprisoned for doing anything wrong, not for committing any crime against the Lord. Uh, he was there for preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was writing to Timothy, one of his disciples, a, a young co-worker in the gospel. And Timothy is even referred to there in verse 1 of 2 Timothy chapter 2 by Paul as my child, which is an affectionate term, a term that shows the, the close and personal relationship that they shared. Paul discipling Timothy, Timothy being a, a young pastor. Now, Timothy had been pastoring the church at Ephesus uh, for probably around four years by the time Paul wrote this second letter to him. And this book is a part of what we refer to as the pastoral epistles or the pastoral letters. And these pastoral epistles, they're, they're helpful in understanding the ministry of the local church, helpful in understanding Christian ministry as a whole. So if you're looking for something to read this summer, something that would help you understand God's plan for the local church, uh, these pastoral epistles would be a wonderful thing to add to your reading plan. Two letters to Timothy, one letter to Titus. Now, this second letter to Timothy from Paul uh, gives a picture of Paul at the end of his life, at the end of his ministry, just before his death. And so this letter, it has a sense of, of urgency to it. He's writing final instructions before he departs from this earth and therefore the Christian ministry here on earth. So, so when you, you read first or Second Timothy, it's got a little bit of a different sense to it than Paul's other letters. He just jumps right in to a, a series of exhortations like we read in chapter 1 and chapter 2. So it's going to be different from Ephesians where he just kind of hangs out and meditates very at the very beginning there in chapter 1, the riches of God's kindness in Christ. It's like he's writing Timothy, young pastor he's discipling, here's a list of urgent exhortations, things that he wants to call Timothy to. He wanted Timothy to be prepared for future suffering and hardship as he served Christ. He wanted Timothy to be prepared to persevere, to continue in the things that he had been taught. And Paul wrote to Timothy, not just to give him exhortation, but to encourage him, to build him up in the face of difficulties and trials. So this letter is a call to Timothy to persevere in the ministry of the gospel. What, what Paul wants him to know is as you serve Jesus, suffering is to be expected and perseverance is necessary. Well, if you haven't already done so, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 1 through 7 this morning. 
you need to use that pew Bible in front of you. Take the pew Bible and turn to page 995. 995. The best way to stay engaged in the sermon is to look at a copy of God's Word. And if you come this morning and you don't own a Bible, uh, we want to give that Bible to you as a gift. So you can take that home with you, read the Bible, connect with one of our members here or one of our pastors or one of the doors and the layout. Uh, we'd love to talk with you more about knowing God's Word, knowing who God is, what He's done in Jesus. Let me read through all of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 as we begin our time here. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, the structure of this passage is, is pretty simple. We see three commands, and we have three images given there. So the three commands, be, be strengthened, entrust, share in suffering. Now, the three images we have there is one of a soldier, one of an athlete, and one of a farmer. And together, these three commands and these three images put together a message that, that ministry involves hard work and hardships. That's how I've heard it put before. But you can expect in ministry, I think this is what Paul is telling Timothy, that ministry involves hard work and hardships. And when I say ministry, I'm not, I'm a, I'm a Baptist. I'm not just talking about those who are elders. I'm talking about the entire congregation. I'm talking about the ministry of the members of the local church. I'm talking about our, our corporate responsibility to pass the gospel on to others, to train up the next generation, to care for one another, to proclaim this gospel throughout this city and to the ends of the earth. That's what I mean when I say Christian ministry, because that's what the Bible means, and that elders would serve to equip the saints for the work of ministry together. Ministry involves hard work. It involves hardships. And, and these three commands, these three images, show the attributes of hard work that Paul commended, and it shows the reward that he pointed forward to. Now, I mentioned earlier, this is timely for our church to consider as we rebuild the ministry of this church, as we seek to rebuild relationships and, and build new ones, as we seek to rebuild a culture of evangelism and discipling and Christian hospitality. And you might think, well, why is Dave using all these words, rebuild? Well, sometimes it's easy to forget what we just came out of, the structures that were in place, two services, something we didn't want to do, something normally we wouldn't do. Uh, all the things that were providentially hindered in this past year that by God's grace are now opened up. And we can say two things. Number one, I, I believe the Lord has us in a good place right now as a church. But number two, there are plenty of things to rebuild and to move forward and to, to resume, to have on our minds this summer as work. The Lord's given us as members of this church. So what I want you to see this morning as we make our way through this passage, this is the outline this morning, I want us to see three encouragements and perseverance. Three encouragements and perseverance. 
the first encouragement we'll find in verse 1. The first encouragement and perseverance is this in verse 1. Perseverance comes through being strengthened. The first encouragement, perseverance comes through being strengthened. Now, you might read a section on a bold call to perseverance in ministry and think, this needs to be a, a motivating message to get people fired up, to, to buckle up, to be strong, to, to keep going, to dig in. But notice that the first command given is to be strengthened. I think the way that the ESV translates this is, is accurate in helping us understand what Paul was telling Timothy. He's telling him, be strengthened. In other words, you have a need. There's something you need that's not going to come from yourself. You need strength. And that strength is going to come from the grace that is found in our Lord Jesus. Now, if you skip over this, and I will tell you, I did that for years. I would skip to verse 2 very quickly for years because it's a wonderful verse about discipling and training and raising up. But if you jump to verse 2, if you jump to the, this life of a soldier and an athlete and a farmer and you miss verse 1, well, you've missed the point of Christian ministry. You've missed the foundation of Christian ministry. You've missed the source of strength that you and I are so desperately in need of. And you might be tempted to jump into the work by your own strength and in your own wisdom. So being strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus is the foundation of this passage. Indeed, it is the foundation of your Christian life and Christian ministry. If we are to persevere in this Christian life, if we're to persevere in doing good, we must be strengthened by the grace that is found in Christ Jesus. The strength that Timothy needed to endure in ministry, the strength that the local church needs to endure in ministry is found only in God's grace in Jesus Christ alone. Now, when we hear that word grace, we think about the word grace, we understand it, it's commonly defined as his God's unmerited favor. That's God's grace, his unmerited favor. That, and that's true. That's God's saving grace. It's a grace that Timothy already knew. It's a grace that if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, a grace that you already know. That God has saved you, not because of your wisdom, not because of your good works, not because of your righteousness, not just because you're one of the best people in Charlotte or in your neighborhood, but simply because God saves sinners. He's just so gracious to save anyone who would turn and place their trust in him. That's the message of God's grace found in Jesus Christ. That his grace that's come through the death of Jesus Christ, paying for the penalty of the sins of anyone who would turn to him, the grace that's come in the power of the resurrection of Jesus, the only one to get up from the grave, to never die again, that grace is found in Jesus. And all who repent and believe in Jesus, those are the recipients of God's grace. And the good news here is if you're here this morning and you haven't put your faith in Jesus, you can be counted among that group. You can know the grace of God, of having your sins forgiven, being counted righteous before the God who created you. If you would turn and place your trust in Jesus this morning and seek forgiveness from God for your sins through faith in Jesus. If that's something you want to know more about, talk to one of our members after the service. Come see one of our pastors at the door. We'd love to talk with you more about what it would look like to know this grace that's found 
in Jesus Christ alone. So Christians, our testimonies, we're saved by grace through faith in, in Jesus. We also know this, though, that, that, that God's grace, it's also ongoing. God's grace, while we have yesterday's grace, and we can look back to our testimony of God's saving grace at the moment of our conversion. We can look back on yesterday's grace and see how, how God caused us to, to persevere through trials. And as amazing as yesterday's grace is, we need grace today. We need grace tomorrow. You see, God's grace is also an ongoing, enabling force in the life of a Christian. Yesterday's grace is amazing, but we need more. We, we need God's unchanging grace today and tomorrow. And so you see the tense of this verb. What it means is this. Keep on being strengthened. Keep on seeking strength from the Lord. Keep on seeking grace that comes from God, that's available to all of those who trust in Jesus. And the, the message of the gospel certainly is that we need God's grace to be saved. But we need God's grace to persevere. You know, there's good news this morning if you feel weak, if you've been struggling in the Christian life, if you're exhausted, if you're going through trials and temptations, there's good news this morning. God loves to strengthen his people. God's in the business of strengthening his people day after day, even in our trials. It's a wonderful prayer to start each day. God, I, I need your grace today. Would you fill me with your spirit that I would walk in your grace that's found in Christ Jesus? I hope that every Sunday morning that when you come in here, which, by the way, Sunday morning is such an important time for us to be strengthened as believers. I hope that you hear that good news every Sunday morning. That God loves to strengthen his people. It brings God glory and honor when we ask him for his strength. He never grows weary of our asking. He invites us to come to him time and time again and confess that we are in need of his help, in need of his strength, in need of grace. You see, that this call to be strengthened, it makes it clear that the source of strength did not come from Timothy, not from himself, but from Christ. That's why we sing, we plan to close this service today with that song that we've grown to love as a congregation. Yet not I, but through what? Through Christ in me. It's our hope. The power of our strength is the presence of Jesus Christ, the one risen from the dead, that his presence lives in us this morning. So Christian ministry, it, it will not endure through mere human strength, but rather through the power that is available in Jesus Christ. Well, I, I wonder, Christian, if you'd ask yourself this question this morning. Do you live life like you are your greatest resource? Do you live life? Do you struggle to revert to that way of living like you are your greatest resource? Do you try to live by your own strength, your, your own wisdom, your, your own ability, your, your own giftedness? Where do you find yourself trying to labor in your own strength? You know, prayerlessness is often a sign of this. When we're not praying, it's, it's showing that we're trusting our own wisdom and our own strength, our own ability. A, a closed Bible indicates that we're relying on our own strength and our own wisdom. Being disconnected from God's people in the local church and living life 
fellowship with other church members. That, that's typically a sign that we're trying to live by our, our own strength and our, our own wisdom. And so a, a great place to start in being strengthened is pray and ask God for his grace. Pray to him and ask. So, so hear me correctly. Being strengthened doesn't mean you just kind of sit around and wait and see what happens. Uh, that's no more true than if you just look at your treadmill and think you're getting shape. Or just walk by your dumbbells in your garage and never think about lifting them or coming up with a plan to lift them. Uh, a closed Bible, you're not going to be changed by that. But open up the Bible and watch the Holy Spirit get to work in your life. Take time to come to the Lord in prayer and watch His Holy Spirit work in your life. You see, being strengthened is positioning yourself with the, re- with the resources that God has given His people to be strengthened. So, so open up your Bibles. Pray to God. You know what was helpful for me even in this past year uh, was the advice I was given by uh, a mentor years ago. And I remember it was, it was almost 10 years ago. And it was a time we had three kids. We had three kids in a period of like four and a half years. And uh, I asked her, how do you have a quiet time when there's no such thing as quiet in your house? Like, what does that look like? And I was struggling because I had just known quiet time as being this kind of like deep, rich, quiet times that were lengthy and I could write things down. And I was really trying to evaluate the, 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 the richness of those based on my affections being stirred each morning. And life changed and those moments changed. And he told me something that was a really helpful piece of advice. He said, worry more about consistency in the Bible. Don't focus so much on just uh, how your affections might be stirred. Good thing, good desire. But you know what had happened? My consistency had slipped. Because I was just losing motivation because the time didn't feel good. He said, just focus on being in the Bible each day and trust that God's going to use that to work in your life. So even in this past season when things were hard and difficult and life was different, uh, that advice stuck out in my mind. And, and, and I had the thought, you know, if, if my consistency in the Bible and spending time in God's Word, if it goes away, a lot of other things are going to fail. And so just having a Bible reading plan, having a plan for your life that your Bible is open that your life is open to other believers, connected in fellowship. That's how we are strengthened spiritually. And also, brother and sister, consider the spiritual strength gained from our times of corporate worship. I really believe this. The most important time of the week is the time we gather together on Sunday morning. I used to think years ago, when I, years ago I used to think my most important time was my quiet time. Joyfully important. But I've become convinced this is the most important time of the week the life of the believer. When we get to glory, we will not be tucked off in a corner somewhere in glory just spending time by ourselves. It's a joy and a good thing to do that. We'll be in the fellowship of God's people and his, in his presence forever. And this is a training ground for that. This congregation is a training ground and a foretaste of what will come on that day. And what a joy it is when you walk in on Sunday mornings and you don't feel strong and you hear God's people singing to you in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and, and your, your soul is lifted up to the Lord, and your mind is renewed. Focus on the truth of the gospel. What a joy it is that if you had a prayerless week, you can come to this service, and it won't be prayerless. That if your time hasn't been that deep in the word, that you can come to this service, and you'll hear God's voice. That we'll come, and we'll see people being added to the church through baptism. That together we will profess our ongoing faith in the Lord Jesus as we partake of the Lord's Supper. This is the most important time of the week. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, let us not forsake the assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. This is central to our encouragement and to our perseverance as Christians. Brother and sister, may we consider the opportunity we have daily 
to come before God. He loves to strengthen his people. And if we're going to persevere, we need to be strengthened daily. Let's consider a second encouragement and perseverance. There in verse 2, persevere in passing on the ministry. The second encouragement and perseverance, persevere in passing on the ministry. We find a second command in, in verse 2 that calls Timothy to pass on the teaching he's received from Paul. Let's look at verse 2. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So in addition to being strong in the grace of Christ, Timothy must secondly commit himself to training up other workers for gospel ministry. So, so how this fits in the passage, I, I think, is this, that, that one way to protect the gospel is to pass it on to others to teach. Paul, end of his life, going to be with the Lord in glory, had passed on the teaching of sound doctrine, the teaching of the gospel to Timothy. And he's telling Timothy the way that this teaching is going to endure, God's designed it in this way, that you would pass it on to other believers, particularly he's to look for this group of faithful men. And we'll get to that in just a moment. So, so Paul is referring to this public proclamation of the gospel. That's the teaching, the public proclamation of the gospel. And, and the witnesses, I think, involve Timothy and all Christians that heard Paul publicly preach the gospel. So Paul is shaping ministry for Timothy, telling him that, uh, that Timothy, that what you've heard from me, entrust this teaching to faithful men. So in other words, he was to pass the teaching of these sound words on. And the key command here is to entrust. So that means to, to commit something of great value for safekeeping. Commit something of, of great value for safekeeping. Entrust this teaching. Now, there is nothing of greater value to the church than the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has commissioned us as his institution on earth, founded by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, his blood shed on the cross to purchase a people for God, to, to purchase the, the church. And, and we've been commissioned by the Lord Jesus himself to display the gospel and to proclaim the truth of the gospel to the ends of the earth until Jesus Christ returns back to earth. So pre precisely because of the great value of the gospel, Timothy must be careful and intentional to entrust the gospel to faithful men. Now you may wonder, why does this say men here? So he, he has them to be faithful men. I think this is best understood as elders. So in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we see that the office of elder is reserved only for men. It's not for all men, but it's for a, a set of men in the church that would meet those qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. And, and so Paul, he uses this term men here because he's instructing Timothy to go and raise up other elders, other pastors who can shepherd God's people in the church. He's telling Timothy, entrust the teaching of the gospel to faithful men who also will have the ability to teach others the gospel. In other words, the whole church benefits, the whole church built up by this group. Now that word able, think of it as meaning competent. Competent in teaching God's word. That, that phrase, able to teach, it's a qualification given for an elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3, actually in verse 2 
of First Timothy chapter 3. You'll find the qualifications there, something good to go look at later today. Uh, most all of it's this godly character, and it's godly character that's expected of all Christians and to be exemplified by elders in the church. And, and really the main thing that sets apart the ministry of an elder from the ministry of any other member in the church is, is it's being able to teach. I think that means uh, a grasp of God's word sound in doctrine and able to teach it in such a way that members of the church are built up, are, are edified, are equipped. And so here, what Paul has in mind is raise up these elders that the entire church might be built up. Now notice that Paul has a generational approach to ministry in mind here. So let's take a look at these different generations in 2 Timothy chapter 2 as the gospel is being passed down. First generation, Paul. So, so Paul starts off with the gospel coming to him and as an apostle, an eyewitness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, chosen by Jesus Christ himself. Paul receives the gospel directly from the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That office of apostle, it lived and it died with those men. And they were marked as those who received the gospel not from people, but from the risen Lord Jesus himself. Paul, the first generation there, he's pointing there to a second generation, to Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. So Paul has passed on that deposit. And in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, he's already said, guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to you. So from Jesus to Paul to Timothy. And the third generation there in mind is faithful men. Timothy passed the teaching on to a third generation. Raise up other pastors in the local church. And then finally, a, a fourth group, others. Speaking broadly of, of the church, these faithful men will be able to teach others also. So the ministry is to move from Paul to Timothy to faithful men to others broadly in the church. And this is to be an ongoing pattern in Christian ministry. So in other words, the ministry of a pastor is to preach the gospel, and to find those to invest in who will preach the gospel as well. So in the immediate context of this letter, Paul is telling Timothy, raise up other pastors, elders. Raise up spiritual leaders in the church. And so there's direction for elders here that we would be intentionally looking to teach others and to invest in them that they would be raised up as leaders in the church. So one thing you can pray for us as elders, pray we would do a better job of that. Pray we do a better job of equipping and raising up leaders in the church. We would appreciate your prayers in that. But I also think there's significance in this passage for the local church as a whole. We see this pattern of multiplication of discipling. It should be present throughout the congregation. So the ambition here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, is for generations of mature believers to be raised up. Paul's instructions to Timothy are to make disciples who would make disciples disciples, spiritual reproduction in the church. So passing on the gospel, passing on God's word to others, who will then pass it on to others. We, we see in Titus 2, one of the other pastoral epistles, even the pattern of, of older women discipling younger women, older men discipling younger men in the church. That's why we don't do things after high school here based on age in our church. We want older men and younger men to be rubbing elbows in the life of this church and older women and younger women, those relationships might be encouraged. And we've said this before. If you're a member of this church, you're an older man to someone. You're an older woman to someone. 
We got kids coming back from food camp and student ministry this next week. How might you invest in them? Talk to Faith Cafe or Nikki Pacetti. They're always in need of people to help them to grow. How could you be an older man or an older woman to them to help pass on God's word? You get to teach systematic theology to kids. I, I tell you, next time I take off in the pulpit, I want to go in there. I want to go in there and be with them. It's an exciting opportunity to invest God's word in the next generation. You know, this is to be a pattern of ministry in the local church. Who can you invest in? You know, who could you seek, member of the church, who could you seek to do spiritual good to this summer? What other member of this church could you get together with to discuss sermons, talk about what you're learning and minor prophets? Who could you get together with to, to pray with, pray for? Who could you grab a book off of our bookseller and read that with in this church this summer? You don't have to have some grand plan disciple. Sometimes I feel our, our efforts are hindered because we think if we don't have some grand plan or structure or thing really set that it's not going to be effective. Just simple steps of trying to do good spiritually to one another. God blesses those, and that will often build into a deeper relationship. Who could you seek to do spiritual good to this summer? Perseverance in ministry, it requires passing on the ministry, passing on God's word, Let's consider a third encouragement and perseverance that we find in verses 3 through 7. Verses 3 through 7, persevere in hardship and hard work. Persevere in hardship and hard work. The third command that Paul gave to Timothy was to share in suffering. Verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. You know what we see in verse 3? It's been a main theme of this letter, and this repeats the command Paul gave in chapter 1, verse 8. There he said, share in suffering for the gospel. Here he repeats this, and he attaches it to the image of a soldier. Paul wanted Timothy to know that suffering is a part, it's a necessary part of being a faithful servant of Christ. Now remember, Paul was in prison when he wrote this. His examples show that all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. His example pointed to that, as did that of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So he was telling Timothy to, to, to suffer together with me. That's what share and suffering means. Paul was saying, follow my model. Share in suffering and following Jesus. And a soldier can expect to experience suffering as they serve. If you serve in the military... You, you understand the sacrifice and the suffering that you are signing up for. And that's why Paul attaches this image, this metaphor here. He's saying in the same way, serving Jesus necessarily involves suffering. It is a necessary part of Christian ministry. And it's here that Paul employs three images. Now, all three of these images, they're attached to serving Jesus and suffering. All three of them. So they're just built-in illustrations that make it, which make it really easy for me as a pastor. They're just illustrations I can teach that I don't have to think up. Three images built into God's Word. So first in verse 4, Paul develops this image of the soldier. Look at verse 4. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. A soldier must not be distracted by civilian pursuits or civilian affairs, a good soldier must be single-minded in devotion. 
that for a first century Roman soldier, that single-minded devotion often meant this. Those soldiers would refrain from marrying. They would put that pursuit off. Good pursuit. It's not saying the pursuit's bad. It's just saying we're going to put that off for the sake of of service. It often meant decades-long service to the Roman army. They often served for 20 or more years in the Roman army. So a soldier was a picture of single-minded devotion. Now, in the same way, Paul was calling Timothy as a minister of the gospel to leave behind the affairs of everyday life and to commit fully to the ministry of the gospel. Now, hear me clearly here. There is nothing wrong with civilian affairs. What's wrong here is being entangled in them. And therefore, your loyalty and your your devotion being mixed up between serving Jesus and serving something or someone else. So, So what's being commended here is don't be distracted from your duties as a soldier. Don't confuse your loyalty. Don't confuse your priorities. That's when civilian pursuits become a problem. Now, the second directive in verse 4, it involves a pursuit, an aim. A soldier has a single-minded desire or pursuit to please the officer who enlisted him. You know who the enlisting officer of the Christian is? Jesus Christ. He's called you. If you're a Christian, he has called you personally and individually to be a part of his people, a part of his family. And therefore, the desire of the Christian, like a soldier with a single-minded resolve, the ambition of a Christian is to please Christ and therefore not get entangled in worldly pursuits or affairs. The call here, just like a soldier has a single-minded laser focus to please the commanding officer, that a Christian would have a single-minded devotion and focus. We want to please Jesus. We look to Christ. He's the one that we serve. He's the one who strengthens and empowers us. Our greatest concern as Christians is to bring Him honor, to, to please Him, to bring Him glory. The evaluation that we should make in decisions, what brings Christ the most glory? In my conduct, in my speech, in my relationships, in my pursuits, how can I glorify and honor the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ? Christ. The call here, it's a beautiful call. Keep pursuing Him. Keep focusing your attention on Him. Again, there's application here for the whole church. Christ has called us together to live for Him. When you and I were saved, we were enlisted into service of Christ the King. Upon profession of our faith through baptism, a public profession, what we said is we belong to Jesus. We've been united to his life and death and resurrection. We've been raised to walk in newness of life. It's all by God's grace. Our life, not our own. We've been purchased, paid for, bought with a price. The blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ. Our lives have been redeemed. Redeemed to live the way that God created us to live in Eden, in fellowship with him, bringing him glory. We've been redeemed to proclaim this good news of Jesus Christ and this message of salvation to all. So this single-minded ambition that we're to have as a church, please Christ. Well, I, I wonder, brother and sister in Christ, what civilian pursuits are distracting you from serving Jesus? 
Again, it's not that civilian pursuits are intrinsically wrong. What's wrong is getting entangled in them, distracted by them. Maybe it's just the busyness of everyday life. Life just feels so slow and, and busy. You're not giving yourself to bad things, but there's just so many good things there that you're not giving yourself to what is best, to, to knowing Jesus, to seeking to, to make his gospel known. Maybe the tyranny of the urgent keeps you from giving yourself to what is most important. It's probably true if, if you're struggling to spend time in God's word and prayer right now, there's something else that's keeping in. Uh, maybe the, the pressure of pleasing your boss or gaining the respect of your coworkers. Maybe that's overshadowing the mission God's given you at work, to be a light for Christ in the workplace, to conduct yourself in a way where people see your good work and understand that's attached to a desire to glorify Jesus Christ. Maybe anxiety over money and possessions, worrying, have you saved enough? How are you going to pay for the kids' braces? How are you going to get them through college? Uh, do you have enough? Maybe that quickly entangles your mind and your emotions rather than your concern being, how can I serve Christ with what he's presently given me? How can I serve Christ in the present life stage that he's called me to be in? How can I look at what God's provided and seek to be a faithful steward of that to serve the Lord Jesus Christ? I've just found one way to turn away from civilian pursuits. And I know this sounds like, okay, the pastor gives us application, of course, but, but hear me out on this. I think one way to turn away from being entangled in civilian affairs, serve in your local church. Serving your local church is a place where consumerism could come to die. It's a place where our concern for others could constantly be promoted. It's a place where we'd long to build one another up and to ask, how can I bless someone else? How can I, how can I be one who gives myself to the hard work of, of ministry? As a soldier must not get caught up in civilian affairs, a Christian must not get entangled in the everyday affairs of the world. The second image in verse 5 is of an athlete. Verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. This image, it continues to build on the theme of devotion. So an athlete's performance requires devotion. An athlete's performance requires discipline, training, as well as commitment to the rules of the game. Now, competing according to the rules, I think this likely refers to the self-discipline and the stamina needed by an athlete that comes through training. So the second metaphor shifts from, from Roman influence to Greek influence, and it focuses on the Greek Olympic Games. And each athlete in the Greek Olympics had to complete 10 months of training before they were able to compete in the contest. Avoiding that rigorous training, which involves suffering and self-control, avoiding that rigorous training would not be competing according to the rules of the contest. So an athlete must discipline their bodies and, and have self-control if they are to run the race. Think about how much time as an athlete is spent in practice. Right? Practice is important. No matter what Alan Iverson says, practice is important. Giving yourself to training is important. And if you're an athlete, talk to any athlete that's here, you've probably spent more time in training, spent more time in, in discipline and what happens in the off-season than you actually spent on the field or on the court competing. Again, this image is connected to sharing and suffering. Think about why few go on to college athletics. Some people have the talent, but they don't have the devotion to let their lives be effective. You talk to those who excel, and they give Friday nights to training, or Saturday mornings to 
same. They say, well, my friends are out having fun. I'm playing, getting stronger, quicker, getting better each day. Oh, there's just something in that image of an athlete that shows a picture of devotion to, to training. Elsewhere in 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul called on Timothy to train himself for godliness. But spiritual discipline plays a vital role in the life of a Christian, and it's for the purpose of godliness. Well, just as an athlete endures the suffering of rigorous training and exercising self-control to win the prize, so Timothy must exercise self-control that he might be found. You know, the motivation for an athlete is a crown, a, a wreath. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul referred to that as a, a perishable wreath, a trophy that you get. I just threw away a bunch of old trophies that were in a box at my grandma's house. She gave it to me. She was tired of holding on to it. It was trophies I'd collected for years. Most of them were participation trophies anyway. And, uh, and I threw them out in the trash. And uh, those trophies, it's like anything else, right? Someone's going to have them one day, and they'll probably throw your trophies away in the trash, whatever you got. It's a perishable wreath. Now, Paul builds on that metaphor and says, for Christians, we pursue an imperishable wreath, meaning an eternal reward. It means the reward of being welcomed into the presence of Christ on that last day. Hearing his words, our pursuit is to hear his words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Brother and sister, I, I wonder what challenges you face in having a single-minded devotion to spiritual training. Well, the third image in verse 6 employs the image of a hard-working farmer. Verse 6, it is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. The, the image of the farmer employs the imagery of hard work. The servant of Christ is to be like the hard-working farmer who labors for a harvest. This verb here, uh, hardworking, it refers to being wearied from labor to the point of exhaustion. There, there's, there's two different types of being weary. There's, there's being weary in the work and being weary of the work. And I pray often, Lord, help me not to grow weary of the work. It's, it's expected to be weary in the work. Uh, if you're a parent, you're tired this morning, that's, that's exhausting work. If you've been one that's been serving in children's ministry, it's exhausting work. It's exhausting to serve and to labor, and we should expect that. In fact, that's a, a blessed life is to wear yourself out. You get one life. That's all you get, one shot at life, and to expend yourself and your energy to labor for the king. It's good, and it's right. It's not something to be avoided. It's something, rather, that Paul said, Timothy, aim toward this. Give yourself to labor to the point of exhaustion. Now, a farmer is expected to be weary of exhaustion. Farmers today, exhausting job. First century, when they didn't have all the tools and the technology and everything else, probably even more exhausting. It's the whole image there, that farmers work long hours. They're up getting things done and probably have got a lot done by the time you and I wake up. They work long days. There's constantly work to be done, plowing fields, preparing soil, sowing seeds, weeding, caring for the crops, fighting off pests, Dealing with unforeseen weather challenges, when frost comes through, when hurricanes come through with high winds. Farmers are there dealing with the fields and caring for the crops. Nothing happens fast in farming. It is laborious. It requires determination and devotion and patience. This image of the hardworking farmer would instruct Timothy and all who follow Christ to join in the suffering involved with laboring for the gospel. You know, that is so countercultural to 
to how we often think about church. It really is. It's so countercultural to how we think about church in America. Ministry is hard work. In our cultural context, the church can, the local church can wrongly be viewed as joining a club that comes with amenities. So I join this church, well, here's what I get. Here's what the church does for me. And so I'm going to join the church that does the most for me. I go where I can kind of feel like it, it serves me well. We may not say this, but how often this is creep in culturally to how we think about church. There's just all sorts of things to be offered to us. Well, let's not think of joining a church as joining a club that comes with amenities. Let's rather think about joining a church as joining a family that comes with responsibilities. The responsibility to care for one another spiritually. The responsibility to serve one another and to meet practical needs. The responsibility to disciple one another, that we don't just say church staff to disciple people, but together, uh, Christian ministry, you seek to disciple one another. The responsibility to pray with one another and for one another. The responsibility to work together to get the gospel out. The responsibility together as a church to send out missionaries and to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. You review the church covenant this week and you'll think through all the responsibilities and the commitments that we've made together as a family. When we join this church, praise God, we joined a family that comes with responsibilities that we can partner together in. So the motivation of the soldiers to please the one who enlisted him, the motivation of the athlete is to win the prize, and the motivation of the farmer to receive the crop, the harvest. This phrase, the first share of the crop, and studying it this week, I don't think it means uh, the priority of who receives it first. I think it refers more to the certainty of the reward. And again, it points to a reward found in glory, in the fullness of Jesus Christ, that laboring for a harvest, it will be revealed in the last day when Christ returns and has the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations, people redeemed from every tribe and tongue and nation as his people. Paul's saying this, work hard, suffer in fear, don't stop, keep your hand on the plow, don't look back. If you're weary, that is to be expected, be strengthened by the grace that's found in Christ Jesus. And while there's much that Timothy could be called to do, and he will be later in his letter, in response to Paul's teaching, look at the first thing he's instructed to do in verse 7. First point of application. I love verse 1, first application, be strengthened, first command. Verse 7, application, think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. The Lord will strengthen you. The Lord will give you understanding. The first application, pay close Brother and sister in the Lord, we consider this, that an important part of faithfulness to Jesus is to reflect on what you've heard. Reflect on the teaching you've heard from God's Word. Reflect on what God has said. In fact, one of the means of perseverance is to consider the teaching you have received and to keep on seeking strength in the Lord. So a life of serving Christ, the blessed life, is one where hard work and hardships are to be Expected. But you know what else we can expect? That Christ is right there. He is in us. He is with us. He is working through us. And by His grace, we will be strengthened. You can expect that, Christian. You can expect He's right there empowering you. He's right there in every failing, 
He's right there in every trial and temptation. Look to him. Look to him. He's there to strengthen you by his grace. You see, this work we've been given as a church, may we not forget, we need God's strength and his grace to fulfill it. May we keep seeking strength from him. May we be strengthened to persevere in the work that Christ has given and so graciously given to the church, the work of building each other up to display and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ for all to see. And may we look forward. One day the race, it will be finished. The work, it will be done. Sin will remain sin. Your life will come to an end. And by God's grace, until that day, may we persevere in pursuing the eternal reward. I leave you with the words of J.C. Ryle as he reflected on pursuing this eternal reward. Here's what he said. The time is very short. A few more years of watching and praying. A few more tossings on the sea of the world. A few more deaths and changes. A few more winters and summers. And all will be over. We shall have fought our last battle. We shall need to fight no more. The presence and company of Christ will make amends for all we suffer here below. When we see as we have been seen and look back on the journey of life, we shall wonder at our own faintness of heart. We shall marvel that we made so much of our cross and thought so little of our crown. We shall marvel that in counting the cost, we could ever doubt on which side the balance of profit lay. Let us take courage. We are not frauds now. It may cost much to be a true Christian and a consistent believer, but it is not without reward. Amen? Amen. Let's bow and pray. Lord, we turn to you and we ask for your grace. We ask for your strength. Lord, we are in need of your help. And we pray that you would strengthen us to look not merely to our cross, but to the reward, the reward of knowing you. Remind us of your grace available to us in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the empty tomb. We thank you for this new life you've given us in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.